0: Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at The Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time.
1: Today in the studio we welcome Rosalie Goldberg. She's the founder of Performa. She's a longtime art history professor at NYU. And she's really a leading scholar in performance art who's written several books on the subject. I can't think of anyone better to speak to about art in general, but
0: specifically performance art at this time than her. What'd you guys what'd you guys talk about? Yeah, so we started off with kind of defining what it is, which is something that her scholarship's been all about and she's really dug into. Um and in today's current cultural climate, social climate, political climate, it's never been more interesting to think about how artists are interpreting today, the now. And they're doing so uh, through performance in, in really magical ways. Rosalie, of course, has been like a central figure in all of this uh, shift and movement through Performa and through all the other work she's done, of course. Um, and you have artists like Marina Bromovich, or even you know someone like Taryn Simon and what she did at the Park Avenue Armory several years ago uh, with Occupation of Loss. These artists are reshaping the sort of place that performance art has in our culture. So getting to sit down with Rosalie on the eve of the 19th edition of Performa was really special. Uh, And we go deep into the Bauhaus, which is the focus of this year's performer.
1: Fascinating. This is not a conversation you hear very
0: often. Um, And really from the expert. I can't wait to hear this. This is Rosalie Goldberg and Spencer. So today in the studio, we have Rosalie Goldberg. Uh, she's an art historian, author, critic, curator of performance art, founder and director of Performa. CR Fashion Book has called her the OG multi-hyphenate, which I thought was pretty fun. Um, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. Really great to be here.
0: So I, I wanted to start, or I guess let's start with the idea of slowing time down.
1: Can I take a deep breath? <laughs> yes, <laughs> slow down. Yes, absolutely. Um I've used that expression, which I think we all hanker for, uh, as regards to performer, which I created in 2004 officially, but we launched the Biennale in 2005. I was specifically in that case relating to the way we see so much video, performance, all new media art. We tend to race through galleries, race through major exhibitions like Documenta. I think one year it just seemed that every single... Space was a, a very long video or installation or projection. And the reality is I don't think any of us ever finish seeing any one of those. I think we pretend to ourselves that we'll be back, you know, but somebody walks over your foot, somebody's dog, you know, runs out the room or something. And it's not a focused, concentrated viewing experience. And so to me that was in one of the the several Items that I wanted to really look at closely with performer was to create performances that held you tight in every mm-hmm. imaginable mm-hmm. way. Um, that really showed you an artist thinking their work and had a beginning and middle and and, and end, even if as abstract as that might be. Mm-hmm. That's my reference to slowing down time to <laughs> look at work to really pay attention. Pay attention.
0: I like this idea of of holding you tight. I mean the notion of of intimacy is so important today I think with with just where we're at culturally politically socially it's so hard to find intimate moments. Uh, is that something you hope to create through what you do with Performa?
1: Absolutely. That was yeah. That's the continuation of that I- idea of slowing time. Mm. Uh, that sense that I, I really feel a responsibility that we're making work, and I want to be able to say to anyone I speak to um, across a, a range of audiences, you must see this work because mm. it will actually move you. It will change the way you think about humankind, there has to be that sense of one-on-one changing what happened to you. I think a lot of that actually comes from coming of age in a way and and during so much of the conceptual art in the 70s where you walked into a work and you came out the other side of Bruce Nam and you walk into a corridor, the lights are yellow and you come out and the world's turned green. And that to me is almost uh, an idea of, again, how do you leave a piece? How do you come out the other Mm. side and have, have it be part of your your mm-hmm. thinking, part of your visceral response to the right. world.
0: You, you almost become an actor, a performer.
1: Really. Um, there's a wonderful quote from a friend of mine with this idea of curb to curb, that from the moment you step onto the into or even near the venue uh, or even en route to, there's an experience that you're being asked to pay attention to. And throughout that process, uh, by the time you come out and even – maybe when by the time you get home and close your eyes mm. there's a sense that you're still wondering about what that experience was and we talk about that a lot with the artists as we work on commissions like well what what do you want somebody to feel what do you want somebody to go away with and these are very close knit intimate questions that we uh, talk to the artists that we're working with for over a long period of time. And it's, it's really fascinating because everybody seems to enjoy being asked those questions. And yeah. we all really take part in that conversation.
0: Andrew uh, recently spoke to Kim Hestrider here on the podcast. And and Kim was talking about how one of her missions and visions is sort of this idea of creating spine-tingling moments.
1: It's great, absolutely. I think I for a while I was talking about work that brought tears, you know, made me cry. Mm. So (laughs) I think it's so much of the the productions that that I could refer to where I was so moved. At one point I had to stop saying that because it was like, and this really, you know, seeing Adam Pendleton stand up and give this extraordinary performance, the very first piece he'd ever done and using a gospel choir and Mm. Jason Moran music, one of the early pieces that Jason was um, in for us and perform in 2007. And I would invariably say, and it made me cry. (laughs) So I had to stop saying that because I'm not a crybaby. But, um, and I love Kim saying that. And by the way, she's actually, dear friend, one of the Uh, first people I ever met hmm. in America. So we go back along. Yeah, we'll
0: get to your Soho years because I I did notice some crossover there. I was thinking about in the research I was doing for this interview and thinking about performance art generally some of the things... You know, those experiences I've had that that have, have really moved me in recent years. And it's so interesting that performance art is linked to memory in this very, as you put it, sort of visceral way. You, 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 there's a response mechanism. Like the number of galleries I've walked into over the past decade, I've forgotten so many of those shows, even if the work was great. Yep. But I haven't forgotten a single one of these performances. And I, I listed a few of them here. Go for it. I wonder. One one was in 2015. Uh, it's actually in your book performance now. as Briony e. Roberts uh, did a performance called We Know How to Order with the South Shore Drill Team at Mies van der Rohe's Federal Center oh, in Chicago. Yes. Beautiful. And it was, I heard the music from blocks away. And that, it actually, that was how I got there. I, I There was no agenda. I just, <laughs> I heard the music and I went.
1: Fantastic. You know, I, I love that we're talking about this experience, the visceral, um, I'm going to go up a little too. I think the visceral somehow always refers to somehow your gut, mm-hmm. uh, the visual, uh, what people don't talk enough about in relation to performance, and I spent a lot of time on in my various books talking about that, is how visual this material is. Mm-hmm. And it's actually also that visual impact that you won't forget. Like, I'm sure as you heard Briona's, the, the sound of the marching bands, but those pictures that yeah. exist the way the
0: architecture shapes the the
1: it's the visual and i i've realized too that when i see something i it, this visual memories is in my image bank forever mm. and mm. whereas for example i you know have a, i have a harder time with theater which is about language and i could see something that i think is absolutely riveting as storytelling as acting but because a work isn't you know not necessarily some of course are, but doesn't have this huge visual impact. I mean, I actually don't recall it in mm. the same way either. I, I kind of take photographs in my I mind and agree. retain these photographs mm. forever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's it's I think that visual impact and the sound I think are those two things that yeah. really take us.
0: Well, it's interesting. Um, another one of the performances I was going to mention it was smell for me. Oh, and was uh, it, it was Taryn Simons an occupation of loss at the Park Avenue armory in 2016 yes and what was so fascinating about this installation aside from the uh, monumental architecture these sort of concrete uh, tubes going up to the ceiling of the armory and the sound of course the different chants and hymns and Weeping. ways of ways of yeah. you know Amazing. Um, commemoration was because of the smallness of each space that you went into, and I I can't remember how many, I think there were maybe 10 or 15 of these concrete tubes with a different sort of immigrant singer, or I guess they were immigrants to the U.S. for this event, but it was interesting in that you had this sort of profound experience of traveling through time, each space you went into, and each space not only sounded different, And aesthetically, you had a different appearance from person to person, but the smell. The smell was actually the thing that I, I brought this up with multiple people and they're like, oh, I didn't think about the smell at all. But I, you know, for me, that was actually like, you know, and smell so connected to memory.
1: So, so real. Absolutely. And these are the, again, what's so fascinating about live performance is these many, many layers that you could be. That's another element that, you know, you talk to an artist about maybe there's a need to heighten that. Heighten the smell or mm. let's bring sound in, in a different way or how are we, again, heightening the, the visual aspect of it. So, yes, it, it's really this idea of touching every possible mm. scent and sense uh, imaginable. Mm. And then, of course, we all carry huge uh, historic reference and his, intellectual reference and political storytelling that's surrounding us every day. So mm. the fact that so many aspects can be captured is extraordinary.
0: Yeah. Aesthetically, the one that I found probably the most profound in recent years was uh, this summer in London. I went to the Victoria Miro Gallery um, and there was an uh, video, eight screen video installation by Isaac Julian called Lena Bobardi, A Marvelous Entanglement. Marvelous. And it Absolutely. was yeah. the most stunning, aesthetically stunning thing I've ever seen, pretty much. And. <laughs> What was so amazing, I found about it, were the layers of narrative sort of woven into this piece, which was, yes, video art, but also performance art. I mean, it kind of... Absolutely.
1: I don't know if you know that we did an extraordinary uh, production commission of Isaac's in Mm. 2007 that came uh, through. He worked on it for more than three years, actually, and it was the development of several... Uh, videos, installations, and then it went live. Mm. And we did that at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and also at Sadler's Wells in London. Um, and that that involves both what you're talking about is this capacity to uh, envelop you visually, to uh, tell incredibly rich, complicated, complex stories, um, and also somehow bring you into the the mood, stopping time. And the stopping time there is... Can you imagine spending an hour and a half with Isaac's work in a, a, a wonderful theatre, as it was at BAM, at the Harvey or mm. Settlers' Wells in London, and being drenched in his in that work for an hour, not walking through, not being interrupted, no distraction, just spending time mm. uh, with your eyes, you know, literally in this excitement of, of visual. Um, images crossing the room and hearing music and seeing dance. It was absolutely stunning. So the pleasure of reaching those heights, of mm. keeping the viewer in one space, in my mind, locking the doors, <laughs> keeping them in, but of course we wouldn't dare do that. But spending time with an artist's ideas mm. is uh, is an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, mm. moment for us, for all of us, to watch that process develop and to arrive at that end, that you're being invited to spend
0: Time, hmm. yeah, I mean, time almost becomes suspended. I felt that way anyway watching mm-hmm. Isaac's uh, video at at the gallery in London this past summer. Um, the The fourth uh, sort of standout I wanted to mention is currently at the Naguchi Museum. It's Brendan Fernandez. He has a performance piece there called Contract and Release, and it's it's dance. And so fascinatingly, these dancers contort their bodies in such a way that they actually almost mimic or resemble Noguchi's sculptures.
1: Fantastic. And mm-hmm. to
0: see dancers in such a way take something that's so solid, you know, stone or, mm-hmm. or metal, uh, and twist themselves in such a way that it actually becomes, you know, animated. That you it's used. a wonderful
1: reference, yes, um, which in, it, just as you're talking brings back so many different references, reminds me actually of Dennis Oppenheim talking about his early performances where he re- referred to almost resembling the, 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 the inherent feel of being a piece of sculpture, whether you were concave or convex. Mm. But more importantly, it's, uh, it's also to me, I mean, I love what Brendan's doing and The way of using the body to actually define space and to understand the body as this visual object, slow it down, um, make those relationships where we're looking at negative space, positive space. We're actually articulating the things that that you would do in sculpture, but you're actually having the dance internalize that, which then takes me to actually Oscar Schlammer and Bauhaus performance, which, of course, we're celebrating this year at Performa. Mm -hmm. It's the 100th anniversary since the school began. And the note there is about how important performance was for teaching dance, architecture, um, sculpture, Space. Schlemmer had a, uh, a course that he called um, the the art figure, Kunstfigur, and again using the body to articulate all these different aspects that we think about in the making of art. Mm. So it's it's uh, it's both didactic and very experiential. Mm. Because if you watch carefully, you can learn something about sculpture that you didn't know you felt. Yeah, and yet also have the visual pleasure of watching those con- contortions, as you
0: mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wa- I'm, I'm going to return to the Bauhaus very soon. Um, but while we're sort of on this point, I wanted to bring up this idea of photographs of performance art, the, the notion of like frozen time, um, because obviously, you know, um, flipping through your performance now book, you, you're experiencing something that was ephemeral and happening in time in a picture and of course, we can reference uh, uh drill team performance in Chicago, where I experienced it in person, and then I see the pictures in your book, and I'm experiencing it in a slightly different way, still connected. How do you think about pictures in the context of performance art and how we interpret performance art through pictures?
1: Such a great question. We could spend a whole, couple, <laughs> several sessions discussing this because, of course, I think about it a lot. Uh, I love, just going back to your reference, flipping through the book and looking at these images. Um, I think one thing that I've really insist on now that these are images made by visual artists, the orig- origin of the performance that creates that image. No, no photographer could dream up such an image go back to also in the book, um, Vanessa Beecroft mm-hmm. or Marina Abramovich, um, Vanessa's that unforgettable image of the right. frieze of naked women in the, the Berlin building and the Mies van der are not quite naked. They're in pink flesh, sorry, right. flesh colored, mm-hmm. um, underwear tights and so on. Or Marina doing that, that extraordinary piece of, um, scrubbing bones and somehow representing you know evoking the horrors of ethnic cleansing mm. no one could come up with that except a visual artist they don't they're not necessarily thinking of making the photo but the the nature of the piece is so visual mm. to start with the entire right. the entire being is focused on what this piece will look like i've often said that we need to learn to look at photographs i'm sure for anyone listening or if you studied art history uh, one of the The things we do most of all, almost like detectives, is how to look at pictures. You take, you know, inch by inch by inch, looking at the way a painting is put together, a Hugo van der Hoos painting or a Cezanne, you know, square inch by square inch. How is that paint put on the surface? Um, I would like to suggest that we learn to look at the photographs Mm. of performance because what we learn from that is an entire civilization. If you look at the photos... Um, taken in the '70s in in a loft in Soho, you can tell from the size of the floorboards and the finish of the floorboard what date it was. I mean, it's it's dating. It's it's anthropology. How come everyone's sitting on the floor? Nobody sits on the floor anymore because they're wearing very expensive, you know, <laughs> leather pants, and they're not going to cre- crease your pants. So th- sitting on the floor is not really the way things go these days. So my point is, as an historian, as an anthropologist, as a sociologist, you can study those photos and come up with a, a larger cultural picture than you ever thought you could. I also don't ever use, don't think, I probably do use the word sometimes, but I don't think of this material as documentation. I think of it as as a, an image in itself. And I like what you said too, that, you know, you have the experience and then you see the photo, And that's a very interesting place to stop for a second just to think about that because think of your childhood. What comes to mind are always through photographs. You don't really remember what it was like to be two years old or three years old sitting on that pony on the beach somewhere or whatever. But you know that photograph and Mm -hmm. you will see that over and over again. And if you look more carefully, you will see all these details in the background, who was there, which cousin, which uncle, whatever, but that experience is through the photograph. And I think we're too quick to say that the photograph is not the piece or the photograph is documenta- merely documentation. The photograph is an extraordinary result of this work. Mm. And, yes, you can look at it 10 years later or 20 years later or go back to it often over and over and over and discover entirely new things or remember, mm. if you if you were there, recall new details or see details that you hadn't noticed because you were there but you you couldn't be looking everywhere
0: or it's a photo of you before your memory really formed
1: yeah so i think the photograph of performance is still a extraordinary subject to be thinking about and that's of course what i think about every time i make that selection do i put this photo or that photo which one is going to tell allow me to tell the larger story or the more complicated story about what occurred. And again, in my looking back and back and back at that photograph, so many new ideas come up. There there, there are these triggers for ideas and feelings and um, the photographs are phenomenal.
0: Yeah. It's like, you know, I think about the process that say a photo editor at the New York times must go through, you know, considering why use this photo over that one and then the power therein of selecting a certain image to represent a certain event.
1: Absolutely. And then, uh, I mean, I think what seeing the times, I'm always keeping photographs that I find on times. I have a, another question, but maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> Why there's suddenly this tendency to show people's feet? Have you noticed that? It's been a very strange... Feet and hands has mm. become a sort of something that's trending at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I don't know.
0: I mean, maybe, maybe it has to do with... Um, yeah, I'm not sure what that would be. Look out for it; it's there. But yes,
1: um, the photograph again. I think we're we're too quick to dismiss the photograph as you, you had to be there. That's another famous line that's come up around performance: like you had to be there. And I say I wasn't at the Battle of Waterloo either, or <laughs> or the barricades of the French Revolution. You know, we learn about events. Absolutely pivotal events that change society, that change culture forever through so many means, through writing, through text, through drawings, through photographs and film um, since the you know, 1800s, through rumor, through so many different ways. So um, I am not one to say you had to be there. <laughs> I think often, you know, the, the audiences at any time for performance have always traditionally been very, very small. but. That rumor of that event never is never forgotten. You know, a John Cage performance at Black Mountain College that everybody will refer back to as this pivotal moment. There's, there's nothing, barely anything there except a diagram of how the audience might have been laid out. But it's this moment that everyone refers back to of a certain mm. kickoff to the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk about the Bauhaus Obviously, that's, that's sort of the focus of Performa this year, as you mentioned, um, and you also mentioned Oscar Schlemmer, who has, is sort of a central figure in this. I find it interesting that it actually is sort of a coming of full circle for you in some ways, uh, the Bauhaus, because when, when you were studying at Witts University in Johannesburg, you, you had a program there where, where it was art history and painting uh, in a school with architecture, very much like the Bauhaus there was this sort of notion of like looking at all the disciplines. And it was just uh, a little later when you were studying in London uh, at the Courtauld Institute of Art that you discovered the work of Schlemmer um, in a big Bauhaus exhibition at the Royal College of Art. What was it about um, Bauhaus thinking about Schlemmer that so appealed to you?
1: Right. Uh, This is really the origin story of the (laughs) performance and the books I've been writing. So backtrack quickly. You're right. The, the Johannesburg, the Witwatersrand University was uh, set up very much like the Bauhaus School. Um, art history and painting and fine arts was part of the architecture department. So we shared the foundation course, actually, that was Bauhaus's uh, gift to teaching about art. And I was a dancer professionally from the time I was very small. And I was also did a fine art degree and was painting and drawing and Uh, really making art. So there was this moment of, what am I going to do? Am I a dancer? Am I a painter? What is it? And um, went to London, wanting to leave South Africa for all kinds of reasons, mostly having to do with politics, but also uh, wanting to pursue art history. And discovered, was at this moment where you have to decide what, what the research is, and went to um, a Schlemmer exhibition, actually at the Royal Academy, not the Royal College of Art. Mm, mm. And there was Schlemmer, and I actually started reading his diaries and going through the material in great detail and discovered that his constant refrain was Am I a dancer or am I a painter? And uh, he then actually related that in the in a, in a very sort of European mind-body uh, discussion about the difference between Apollo and Dionysus. Apollo being the god of intellect, Dionysus being the god of play and pleasure and theatricality. And so that became my dissertation, and that was really the beginning of uh, really pursuing an idea about the mm. importance of performance um, in the history of 20th century art.
0: Mm. And... Your personal connection to Schlemmer obviously also has to do with this idea of of yes, you had grown up a dancer. Uh, Schlemmer also had this sort of personal dilemma between choosing between dancing and painting. You've said, I finally felt like I found someone who understood me <laughs> well, oh,
1: yes, there was a great sense of of uh, excitement about pursuing his ideas, and of course, what he then showed us was how. He could take those different elements and actually explore them and use mm. them as part of um, an education. You know, he's teaching young artists and asking them to think about space. So he creates very specific dance uh, demonstrations that show us about space. So like the slat dance. or mm. So he, he's really thinking about this very, very deeply about how we move through the body through these different art forms, whether it's in color or light or shape or you know, moving space around. So um, each of his writings are very wonderful models and templates for teaching art. Mm. And again, making us, we talked right at the beginning about the visceral quality, making us somehow of performance more, you know, sort of that every part of your body is tingling with Mm. this sense of, of awareness, of consciousness, of space, of time, of color, of smell that we're actually in the, this process of heightening all those Mm. responses. So he has, you know, endless texts about this. And he's also fascinating because he looks across at other artists' work as well. And he's unusual in in his diaries and constantly both at a very personal social level. You can get all kinds of gossip from the diaries about who was doing what to whom in, <laughs> in the Bauhaus environment of these very, you know, lots of really extraordinary people being gathered together in, in one small town. But he's also referring to, the playfulness of one side, or the more theory-based aspect of another, or the the idea of pure form versus the idea of Dionysian you know, surrealism and uh, absurdity. So he he takes one through so many different issues that, and each of them endlessly become another way to investigate art making, not just performance, but art mm, making mm. How, how we treat color, how we treat painting, and even the famous. Painting and, of course, this extraordinary moment whenever I go to MoMA and see Schlemmer's painting of the Bauhaus stairwell, even that to me talks about performance and dance because everybody seems to be on point. They've got these very pointy feet. Mm -hmm. The placement of the body going up the stairs, each of them look like dancers, no question. And unusually, also for paintings, several figures are from the back, which I guess to me is also. The way a dancer more typically turns in space mm. you don't very often find paintings of figures from the back
0: your personal connection extends even further in that the first piece you wrote for art form in 1977 was on oscar schlemmer and performance
1: yes um, i've just recently rediscovered that piece <laughs> so wow it's great it really does come around so very early on, uh, and again, it's, you know, why does one get obsessed with these uh, stories? And it was that identification, that sense of, I like, I felt I really understood deeply what he was talking about and would use that. Even I remember when I was, and before I discovered him, I know when I was doing painting in life class in Johannesburg, I still remember almost you know, I'm now I'm just demonstrating here, but almost like holding a part of my body in order to draw. There was this direct sense of making this a body, but recognizing that I could actually physically hold my own body in a certain shape, mm. um, and physically, not even through a mirror, take that the feel of that body and draw it. So, so back to that article. So yes, that was. And also, as far as I recall, that article, too, said very seriously this this work needs to be looked at equal to visual art as we understand it. Because I think so often, which is, again, the the reason for creating the, my first book and 40 years later, 30 years later for creating Performer, was to say this work needs to be looked at as a serious integral part of art history. It is not something playful and on the side. It is not a sideshow it is a very, very important part of the evolution. We don't like that word particularly, but of um, of, of of shaping and shifting art histories for the last several hundred years mm. is where the body comes into play, and especially in the twentieth century, where most of the work we look at is multidisciplinary, um, but it just doesn't get called performance. It gets called something else, you know, like video. Or-
0: <laughs> yeah. I want to go back to South Africa and your childhood there. You were growing up in Durban while the country was under apartheid rule. Um, Talk about that experience and and tell me a little bit about your parents.
1: It's a very long story. I mean, a very deep, complex sense of what that meant to be growing up there. South Africa under apartheid was was a police state. Uh, It was very disturbing every minute of the day we knew telephones were tapped. Um, of course, to be in a privileged position there, but that doesn't mean that one wasn't very, very aware of every moment that was going on. You know, Friday night going to, going to my parents grandparents for dinner. As children, we'd, we'd want to get home before curfew was came on, which I believe was at 10 p.m., when all Africans had to be off the street and policemen would go running around with Truncheons and arresting people, so it was frightening, upsetting, um, very, very disturbing. My parents were uh, are were um, remarkable, <laughs> deeply caring human beings. My father was a doctor and real old style GP who'd get up at three in the morning to go to see patients, uh, often in some of the you know the areas that were called for, you know the apartheid closed off areas. Uh, my mother was always a teacher; she taught children and handicapped people of hearing, hard of hearing. So there was always a sense of doing as much as we could, being very concerned, very, very deep sense of of consciousness and feeling of responsibility about how we could all engage with each other. The extraordinary side was growing up in Africa, uh, waking up to the sound of Extraordinary birds and miners and the the hardy da birds screaming their heads off, uh, the landscape, the music, turning on the radio and there's a Zulu program and the most phenomenal music, going into town which was you know downtown I guess you'd call it here, um, where club people wearing African beads it was still everyone was it was still much more traditional clothing in the streets, or going to the Indian market. There's a big Indian population. Um, which was all those gorgeous pictures you see from India, um, you know, of curries and colors and saris. And so, again, a multicultural life before that word became multicultural, you know, before that work took hold. So a multicultural, very politically conscious, I think very conscious even as a child about women and men, black and white, religion, any kind of prejudice,
0: and it's interesting you know your parents seem to be very neutral in a way in the sense that that you were given access to all these different worlds and able to kind of yeah. to be very aware of that from a young age um and I understand when you were when you were studying dance, uh, you started as a tap dancer, you did classical ballet um but what I found most interesting was was the Indian dancing, yes, that and, was
1: my mother's idea
0: and and <laughs> and great. I read that you were the only white girl in the entire mm-hmm. Indian dance class,
1: right, well, it was actually a dance concert that we did at the city hall, and I was in disguise um, <laughs> again that so my parents were were neutral in that sense of yes they they just encouraged us to take off, and my mother taught an in Indian school, and so I had an Indian math teacher come to try and coach me uh after school, which was not easy math you know being one of those mm. subjects that made me very anxious and his niece was a Bharatnatyam teacher, and so it was immediately, oh, how about Rosie studying Bharatnatyam, which was totally extraordinary and so indeed, um. I studied Indian dance quite some time mm-hmm. and got to perform at a big concert with a lot of other with children my age.
0: It's interesting, you know, hearing a little bit about your parents. And I can't help but think that some of the, let's call it bridging of boundaries that they were doing, you sort of discovered performance art was a vehicle to do something quite similar, to be able to bridge boundaries in a way that few other media could.
1: I realized actually just quite recently that I think you're right, that that sense of lack of boundary or no boundary borders between art, politics, film, music, sound, everything around us uh, really does come from growing up in South Africa again, because somehow even early on, it, it registered to me that each of those parts of what one was looking at, feeling, seeing, I was was equal it wasn't mm-hmm. like oh let's go to a museum and see an artwork and separate it out from this extraordinary person standing in front of me wearing african bead and so on it was i guess that that heightened sense of looking and appreciating so many parts of what was around and because the politics was so dire and because it was so inescapable i think it also made was very clear from early on that you couldn't separate politics from the way we read the newspaper, from the way we looked at images, from the way you looked at people on the street, from seeing the daily life, you know, roadways, or, um, you know, the whole separation, the whole apartheid idea. Mm. Every one of those aspects translated into art, politics, movies, film, you know, what everyone was looking at. So I think I might have lost your question. No,
0: no, no, it makes sense.
1: I think, again, very... uh, in some ways, you know, last year when we brought a big South African group to perform, it was really my year to come out as a South African. Mm -hmm. I think after living here for a long time, I probably didn't talk about it, but somehow recognizing what this work was and how I felt so connected to it and that it was such a revelation to me as well. It really was time to go back in and see how much that first 20 years of my life really is who I am.
0: And of course, you, before coming to New York, went to London, where you studied and, and from 1972 to 75, were director of the Royal College of Art Gallery at, uh, I have to point out, an impressively young age.
1: <laughs> A big surprise to me, too, when I got that job. <laughs> and I think I know the answer. I applied for the position, which is director of exhibitions at the Royal College. Um, I had just finished the Courtauld and... I didn't really know anything about contemporary art. Schlemmer was as far as I'd gone. And to their probably <laughs> surprise, to the, the the powers that be at the Royal College, they actually invited several students to be on the, the interview panel. So there was I in my kind of sailor's pants and <laughs> Japanese uh, jacket with big dragon on the back, um, meeting... You know, highly respected, highly, you know, lords and ladies. Some of them, literally, lords and ladies, who were part of the school, and students—about four students—who were head of various student bodies in the school. And for some reason, I just said that I wanted to work with all different departments, find a way to make every department talk to each other. And little did I know that interdepartmentalization was the word at the time. Everyone was trying to figure out how to get the graphic students to talk to the painting students, mm. talk to the art history. And, and here so you
0: on. are with this sort of Bauhaus-like education that you have. And
1: so I talked away about how one could make this all work. And um, lo and behold, I got the position. Mm. And I still remember, again, we won't name names, but a dear friend who's still a friend who has major galleries saying, what do you know about? contemporary art and I said (laughs) I have no idea but I'm going to Venice tomorrow so I'll let you know (laughs) I just took off for the Venice Biennial for Documenta for Los Angeles and New York and that was my education I just Mm. jumped into the deep end
0: yeah well there's something to be said I think about having an insatiable appetite for culture and just being curious period
1: just being absolutely you know determined and obsessed yes Mm. And to be part of the present, you know, I, I really didn't know at that point, I you know, this was way before curatorial studies departments. And I really didn't know if you paid artists to exhibit or they paid you or <laughs> the economics of it or how any of it worked. But again, that first Venice biennial where um, I think I met everybody imaginable from Jemana Tchelan to Kosuth to... Marcel Brota's. Well, that was I met him at and, and Documenta. So it was really a, a way. And coming to New York the first time, literally my first night was at Max's Kansas City, and mm-hmm. there was Bob Smithson at the bar, and Vito, and um, I think in, in it was New York's at that time was very small art world, so yeah. it felt like you could meet everybody in a week. You know. Yeah. So you you were just
0: um, it was osmosis for you. You're just coming. Just, coming straight at you.
1: You know, really just uh, absorbing it all and, you know, being absolutely
0: yeah.
1: fascinated by the different – and again, the, coming to New York that, that first time, um, I had studio visits with Bryce Martin. I went to see Robert Ryman. Just anyone one called, they'd say, oh, sure, come on <laughs> by, you know, and possibly – I mean, you know, saying I was director of the gallery at the Royal College of Art was a nice entree, but –
0: yeah. Well and while you were there um you know you you did exhibitions with the Kipper kids, Brian Eno, Christian Boltanski. A pretty amazing run.
1: It was great. Um we did the first line describing a cone with Anthony McCall, we did I had Carl Andre come around, I had Vito, we did an uh Avalanche magazine, you know, basically what happens, I came to New York and said to anyone, you know, London was very quiet in the 70s and said, you know, if you're passing through, just let us know. Uh, Christo arrived and did a fantastic slideshow. And I still remember his response like, oh, you're so, you're just a kid. You know, we were expecting some grown up in this position. It was like, welcome, you know, it's fun. (laughs) So, you know, in some crazy way, I think I'm still doing the same programming, yeah. Now well, that and and
0: um, so you you moved to New York in 1975. You know, this is a a time of you know rich scene in Soho. You've got Robert Wilson, Philip Glass, Steve Reich, Blinky Palermo, Robert Longo, Cindy Sherman, um, and that's the world you're in.
1: That was the world. Amazing. And the world downtown, you know, was a very confined geography too. I'd like to say we own downtown, Mm. everything below 14th Street. People wouldn't dare come there. There were no lights in the street. You know, it was a really rough and tumble place and we loved it that way. Mm. And indeed, Cindy and Robert wrote to me from Hall and said they wanted to get together and meet because they'd read some of my early articles from London. They were very aware of what everybody was doing. So, You know, this endless conversation um, about what we were seeing, uh, that conversation is really what, you know, it was hard to resist, hard to leave and just wanting to come back and live here forever.
0: And it was at The Kitchen, um, which you became curator of video and performance art there in 1978, that you did some of, I guess, the first solo shows for Robert Longo, David Sally, Cindy Sherman. Yes. Names we all know now
1: indeed, we had also did a beautiful Sherry Levine. There was uh, Jack Goldstein, really beautiful, oh. his um, the jump, which was quite extraordinary. And so at the kitchen, again, I just took this idea further to say that we needed to show all disciplines all the time. So small correction that I never th- think of myself only as a performance art historian, but really as, oh. as art and culture and the, the, the full picture at all times. So also created a video viewing room there. The idea being that you could just hang out and, Mm. you know, people were notoriously late. And so at any time you could find, you know, Bill Wegman sitting there or just endless numbers of people would just come and hang out in the video room. And again, this notion of using all the different spaces there were a lot of different, it was a big loft and a lot of different spaces for different kinds of mediums, so there was a dance program uh, run by Eric Pagosian. there was a music program run by Reese Chatham and we were all in on the game every morning and night and then we'd all go to Broom Street Bar afterwards Mm. for dinner or CBGB's later so the geography of Soho was really part of the story too
0: What do you think it was about that time? It seemed like Especially for you in, in the context of your career, such a rich moment, you know, coming out of London and having this curating opportunity. And, and of course, uh, in 1979, you had your first book, Performance Art from Futurism to the Present, come out, which was was sort of a groundbreaking book for uh, understanding performance art. It's still in print. It stayed in print for 40 years.
1: Um, what was it? Everybody enjoyed being poor and or not being rich. Materialism was the heart of anti-materialism. I think was a big part of the ethos of artists and conceptual art in the seventies. Was really against the marketplace. New York was bankrupt too. That was something else. I I think cheap rent, the the, the sense of excitement of the city was really. Of, of downtown was phenomenal. I mean, to have a 2000 square foot laugh for $200 a month, that's something, something <laughs> and hard to resist, you know, like I want one of those, I'm coming, <laughs> I'm moving over. The concentration of people coming from so many different places, you know, meeting everybody in that first time I was in New York and, you know, making friends right then with Laurie Anderson or mm. soon after with Laurie Simmons or you know, with Longo and Cindy and Jack Goldstein. And, and the, the conversations were really profound, I have to say. I think we tend to get carried away by the excitement of the 70s and look at a lot of pictures. And But I always want to go back to how serious the conversations were. Mm. Uh, people were really obsessed about talking about what the different concerns were, uh, everything from post-Vietnam to, you know, what was going on in Nicaragua and politics and conversations about feminism and men and women and it just seemed that every time you got together the co- the conversation was what I found so mm-hmm. riveting. Uh, it wasn't just social and having fun and wearing lots of black.
0: <laughs> what do you think changed? I mean obviously in the 80s so much became about money.
1: Big change. Uh, my rent went from $200 a month to $2,000 a month overnight. Um, I think uptown discovered downtown and real estate we have the beginning of the reagan era and that spills over into what was happening in england and really the beginning of another kind of level of finance to suddenly be on wall street mm. it was really shocking you know people never admitted to being in finance before whereas finance became the goal a really big shift I think high high art and low art, I mean, there were exciting aspects to it. I think the beginning of cable television, hard for you to imagine now, but that did also seem to say that, you know, everybody was going to have their own cable TV. A real big change in economics. And, you know, we could go into that in so much detail. Yeah. Um, beginning of another layer of collectors that came with the, with that economics, young collectors, the sexy kind of art world. Coming in almost as a relief after the very austere conceptual seventies, the conversation about mass media and popular culture. Um, these are things that you know. I recall endless conversations with mm. all of these, each of these artists in the back rooms of the kitchen. We'd be watching Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and laughing our heads off, and, <laughs> and you know, the Gong Show, and and at the same time, everybody was you know absorbed with Godard and looking at really. Extraordinary movies, so I think yes, this gang had a lot to say to each other. Mm. It's very exciting,
0: and it seemed like another really sort of pivotal moment, especially in the context of performance art and the work you've been doing. Kind of came at the turn of the new millennium. Um, You you did a a Logic of the Birds, a multimedia performance with Sharon Nashat in two thousand one. Also during this time. You were sort of developing what would in 2004 and uh, publicly in 2005 become Performa.
1: Yes, thank you for starting there because uh, with Shirin because that was a big moment. You know, just backtracking a little on the personal level. So, yes, I was writing about so much performance. It's interesting to think that I wrote that book in 79. I didn't know it was like a marriage, you know, that I would spend the rest of my life <laughs> writing about it. But it's there's so much to say and there always is. But, you know, coming to uh, the 2000s um, where the marketplace had become so strong and uh, and yet I was still going to performances on the Low East Side and uh, seeing these very rough and, and engaging but very often unfinished work and still, in a sense, wondering what, what could occur to get that work to another level where uh, these very important persistent discussions that were going on in performance mm-hmm could have a wider audience. There was that sense, I don't know at which point one reaches it, like, can I really keep going to all these places, you know, very sort of underground, literally places. And when do, when does it grow up? When does that work go to the next phase? Mm-hmm. So the idea to commission Shirin to do a work literally came while I was sitting in Venice watching Turbulent and was the, the one of the early times they'd started using the large spaces at the back there. And, um, Looking at this work and just feeling, why doesn't performance look like this? This is so beautiful to look at. It's profound. Everyone wants to say performance is political. It is. Sharin's work was deeply political. It was men and women, East and West, and it was beautiful. It was you couldn't take you know, it was it would just caressed your eyes with its visuals. It had sound that could make you weep. It was so meaningful in every possible way. And that was that moment I came back and I knew Shirin not that well, but I knew her and I said, would you ever think of doing a live performance? Mm. I remember I was at her loft in, on, in Chinatown and said, you know, you have all the ingredients. You have this incredible cinematic choreography. You understand time. You understand how to evoke, you know, emotions, but very abstractly. I could just imagine those performers walking off the screen into the space and making a live theater piece and she said yes and essentially that is the beginning of the idea of performer because mm-hmm. commissioning that new work and i really again like my first job had no idea what it meant to produce something i had, didn't know what it was going to cost or what it would entail but we went off to Masmoco where we did a residency and i'm not going to go into all the detailed stories but suddenly we did open it at the kitchen and i decided. It, I knew it was too important that I wanted to, that to be the workshop and not the premiere and that we could work on it a bit longer. And I had Nigel Redden come from Lincoln Center and he, we went for a drink after. He says, we're taking it to Lincoln Center. So mm. the very first piece that I commissioned and produced went straight to Lincoln Center, essentially.
0: <laughs> not a bad start.
1: And that was a nice start. And it just that was where this idea that I want mm. to commission new work for the 21st century, find a way to support it curatorially production wise Mm. financially so it can really step up onto a larger stage and work with artists who, who not necessarily have ever done performance before
0: yeah well i like the idea of also sort of channeling a lot of what was happening for you in the 70s this this notion of free experimentation and ideas and and not doing something that's all about the money it's 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 not about a marketplace it's really about the ideas and the conversation you're trying to start you've you've even described also some of it as this notion of like radical urbanism and bringing performance into places you might not expect it bringing it to a larger audience than normally would understand it or or be willing to go experience it i guess connected to all that how do you choose the themes for Performa? Um, you know, in 2009, you had Futurism. In eleven it was Russian Constructivism. 13 is Surrealism. 17 it was Dada. This year, of course, the Bauhaus.
1: Well, if you remember that original book, you'll find we're going, <laughs> we're going chapter by chapter. But in fact, it is tied to time. 2009 was, I called it back to Futurism. I couldn't resist. And I knew <laughs> that was waiting. So... Hundred Years of Futurism, and that was that startling moment where, where the Futurists and the Manifesto of Futurism in, 19, in 1909 really talks about this need for all disciplines to come together, to work together, to – Marinetti was very – very, very clever, both as a publicist and marketing his ideas, but also in insisting as a poet that he had a painter, an architect, a mm-hmm. dancer, you know, a theater person, a noise musician. So he was really going through each discipline and, and ripping it apart and saying, let's write a new manifesto for the 20th century. And I felt this complete, again, this identification of why he's looking at the 20th century, taking each discipline and just really picking it apart and saying, how do we make this 20th century Absolutely riveting and saying, here we are 100 years later, we're right at the beginning of the 21st century. What are we going to do similarly? So that was very easy to say, 1909, 2009, we're going to celebrate this very radical idea of um, bringing all these departments together, breaking it apart and coming up with new ways of looking both at history and our own presence. So I really use history as inspiration. It's like it's always a touchstone. Look at that and see the amazing things that were done how all these different parts came together and mm-hmm. try to compare and predict and use it as a provocation for the future.
0: Yeah. I l- it's it's like creating new memory out of history, which is so fascinating.
1: And what's exciting. So just to, to take you through how we do that. So that's what I call the history anchor and it's less the theme for the way. Although it kind of becomes that because what's so interesting. So, okay. I still teach at NYU using teaching techniques Mm. you know you give students a reader so we started making readers and that very specifically showed why this period and why it's relevant so we have a reader on the future it's all the best material that we felt was relevant to performance at that time Uh, we did one on surrealism but blowing surrealism out of the water looking at Dakar and Cuba and South America and Johannesburg and not just surrealism in Paris in 1924 and you know Mm. one one two cafes, sorry, maybe three cafes. Uh, So really, again, pulling that open. What is surrealism?
0: The multicultural idea. The
1: multicultural, really looking around the world. Mm. We did similarly with Renaissance. I decided, oh, the Renaissance came about because often if I'm talking to a very general audience, the best way to get attention is to say, and you know what, even Leonardo da Vinci did performance and suddenly everyone goes, ah, okay, now we're talking. (laughs) But it's true. He really created performances. In fact, there's a wonderful part in his diary where he talks about, it's a letter that he wrote to Ludovico Sforza in Milan. And he says, he's looking for a job in the court. And he says, I'm a pageant. I make pageants. I'm an engineer. I'm an architect. I'm a lute player. I'm a, po- a poet. I'm a performer. And I'm also a painter. So completely reverse the way we think of Leonardo. He went through all his action type of activities and ends with and I'm also a painter. We know he actually made very, f- finished very few paintings. So, we use those history anchors that research as a way of informing as many people who will listen about this remarkable history. So first, it informs our team. So I would say that. Anyone who's worked at Performa is like the best educated in and this diff- these different histories because they've gone through this this course of what, well what was performance in right. the Renaissance? We can hand you a reader, performance in Russian constructivism, and you know you can get that reader. I'll take you through it, or if you came to the saw that program, you would have learned so much about that period. So it's it's a way of educating large and larger numbers about the importance of this of mm. live performance in the history of
0: art how do you select you know, the artists that you work with it's been such a, a incredible array from mike kelly to francesco vizzoli marina abramovich adam pendleton as you mentioned earlier sanford biggers Derek adams um Rashid Johnson, of course, who who you're honoring at the Performa Gala this year and actually who we're going to have on the podcast later this
1: season. Oh, fantastic. Amazing. You know, um it's very personal and initially it was my personal stories and now the curators on board have been through the, let's call it training or understood how we work and start to read that themselves and bring in. It's really... um as with Shirin, that's that's my example of, you know, seeing the work, feeling it has all this hidden, this built-in theatrical possibility and what would happen. And possibly um, looking at a lot of those artists and feeling, especially, again, we, we haven't backtracked, maybe to backtrack a little to mm-hmm. the late 90s where so many artists, Shirin, Douglas Gordon, Stan Douglas, mm-hmm. Steve McQueen, Isaac on no, projections, major major projections in, with film and video installation. Again, this idea of work that is so seductive visually that just literally, you know, t- tickles your eyeballs because it's so beautiful the whole time. So, a lot of the time, the, where, that's where it begins. With Rashid, for example, I said to him for years, I would say, Rashid, I know you don't typically do a performance, but if you ever have an idea. I'm waiting, you know, mm-hmm. just let me know. And it sort of almost became this this mantra whenever I'd see him and say, remember, whenever you're ready, you know. Yeah. And so one year he said, I got an idea. I said, what is it? And he said, I want to do Dutchman, Amira Baraka play, but I want to do it in the bars on 10th Street. And as we know, those bars are pretty seedy. They're not, it's not a spa. It's, it's very rough and ready. And we went from there. Uh, Isaac Julian, actually, that's another one. He came to see Sharin's production that I did, and he was at the kitchen when we did the original workshopping. Mm. And as we left, I saw him there, and I said, "Isaac, you're next. I want to work with you again for the same reasons that I just felt he had the capa- that his work had the capacity to go live and to bring a whole other mm. idea to what performance could be, performance art could be." And so Shirin Isaac Sandford Biggs, like all these different people. Adam Pendleton, I I would like to say jump started his career. Ten years he was he was very very young. He was only twenty three. He had never had a major, you know. He was just starting to show, and I'd only ever heard him once do a poetry reading. But something about him made me feel this guy is he's, he's, you know he's amazing. And mm-hmm. what would he do if he went live and? I think the the day after his performance open was literally the next day. You know, I think it was Holland Carter. It was almost the proverbial a star is born. Mm. Um, it, people were just knocked out. So to see an artist, a very very young artist, go way beyond even his own expectations, mm. it was really fantastic. So back to the choosing is is very personal because we work for two years with an artist, sometimes more. Sometimes things seem to need another year or to wait till the next session. It's very very personal for each of us, and how we work with the artists is it's, right. it's, is very very engaging. It's not like oh you have a commission, here's a budget, come back in two years. Well, this well is yeah, this.
0: performance is a, a different level of intimacy, and and I think yeah. you know, high, high stakes in a way.
1: At high stakes is is something to think about because I recognize for a lot of for everyone I speak to, it's it's a cha- You know, it's not a dare so much as. I think my mantra there is hundred percent risk, hundred percent trust. Because huge risk for for any of these artists, you know, to say, Yes, I'm gonna do live performance and everyone's gonna come and see this work. Yet they're already, you know, very well known perhaps for their, their painting or Judah Moretto as last year, but high risk, high trust that somehow the imagination of the artist is so profound that and we will be there as, as safety nets and as guides and support, but they will do it. So whatever, it's it's this this balance, mm. risk and trust. It's mm. very
0: exciting. Um, I want to finish on sort of how we got here. Of course, you know, the term performance art was around in the 70s, but its origins are still sort of unknown as far as I can tell. And um, I've also read sort of that, that you don't like the term performance artist or you don't care to use it that much. So I'm curious sort of, you know, in the evolution that we've discussed throughout this episode and just in thinking about what performance art even means, especially today, where we have this sort of matrix of online life and social media and, you know, the sort of complications that come with that, uh, what it means to be a sort of performance artist or what performance art even means today. so.
1: It's the big question. Yes, thank you. Several different parts to answer there. I think think performance is really a major, uh, in a sense, it's getting the attention finally that I've been banging this drum for so long to say there's a huge history, there's enormous knowledge and information. Um, I used to think the subtitle of Performer should be We Are Your Performance Art Department and send that round to each museum because I felt museums had not fully understood or recognized that material. Mm. And lo and behold, finally, mission accomplished, you know, in that sense. Um, MoMA is now, this week, reopening with with a performance studio at the very heart of the collection. And the collection has been rehung related to those holdings. My point being that, actually, in every contemporary art museum, performance is hiding in plain sight. It's just been called something else. Uh, Robert Rauschenberg, Oldenburg... um, you know, I mean, the uh,
0: Tate Turbine Hall has the
1: Tate Turbine Hall definitely changed that mm. just hugely. The museum has changed too along the way. By of course, that the seventies museum was a hushed place; it was like walking to a library. You whispered. You walked very quietly. Um, nowadays, you expect to go into this culture palace. You know, <laughs> you have lots and lots of people.
0: We, and, we have we have the uh, shed just north of and us, and we
1: here. have the shed. You know, I think the. The, back to the term, I, it was a big term used in, in the 70s very specifically. So that's another reason for me to try to find other ways. Mm. Other ways, it's not easy to find another word because that was the name in the 70s. But so many artists who work in performance will tell you that they're not nasty performance artists. I see them, I see Joan Jonas as a visual artist, not as a, you know, she's an extraordinary visual artist who works with film and video and drawing and painting and objects and performance. Uh, marina is an extraordinary sculptor her understanding of space is phenomenal her objects are beautiful which you know in each case these artists also do performance but they they're also visual artists so i try to get people to think of that more because because there's so much dismiss. you know performance is sort of weird or it's strange or which came a lot out of a lot of the work from the 70s and even in the 70s performance art was used along there were subcategories like body art, land art, um, you know, autobiography, um, so on. So uh, terminology can get a little dicey there, but, you know, it works both ways. I I use it, but I also try to, when I use it, to say, but hold on, let's expand it to understand it's also contemporary art. Mm. The 70s conceptual art is performance or vice versa. Or if we're talking about, you know, the um, so-called relational aesthetics, which is a complicated term to come to grips with, That's performance by another name. All those artists are doing live pieces, but it's just, it has another message to it, which talks about the complexity of the the material within that work, but it is all invariably live work. And so where are we going? I think performance is paradoxically very accessible. On one hand, it's like, well, I don't understand performance, but actually put a person in front of another person we're looking at each other we can read each other in some fashion mm-hmm. from all the aspects that come across just one person in front of another so i think it's accessible i don't think you know i think it's more accessible than say an abstract painting so i want to look at abstract painting and say i don't really understand it i never studied this you know i don't i don't get it or they'll feel intimidated to try to get it Somebody will stand in front of Marina and make their own story out of that. They might not g- totally get it in relation to some very nuanced idea that she's thinking about, but they have a story to tell. They can respond and it starts huge conversation because everyone can have big arguments about it. So performance is accessible. It can have and does now have a much larger audience. I think the general public are intrigued by what they're being asked to think about, they're surprised. And I think the fact that it is so layered, that it allows people to talk about these complex times in which we live, is something that will hold it in very, very interesting ways going forward. You know, life is so complex. Every minute of every day, what's going on politically, what's going on in the media, what we're reading online, the shifts, the changes, whether we're all going to throw our phones into the (laughs) fountain like she did at the end of that movie or not this fast moving ideas of culture as sped up through technology is something that performance can really respond to. Mm. And I think all the things we've talked about with your fantastic questions show how rich it is and how, how much potential it still has. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't have to be limited in any way. It's not limited in any way. It's really about the imagination of the artist. And I think when people talk a lot about you know what's going on in scale of galleries and museums and art fairs this look at this conversation we've had Mm. we're touching on so much on on we haven't even touched on music and philosophy and um other concerns but Performance is very, very rich that way. And I think if we were talking about the state of the art world right now, we'd probably be talking about, we'd have such a different conversation. Yeah, I don't think we could have gone on for this long.
0: <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been terrific. And, Thanks, Rosalie. Um, you've really explored lots of different things. Thank you.
0: Thanks for coming today. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv.